This is Line Upon Line, brought to you by It Is Written. And the best person to get an answer like that from would be Jesus. At Line Upon Line, we answer your Bible questions. Thanks for submitting them. In addition to that answer, open the book of Revelation. God wants you to be ready for the second coming of Jesus. And He wants you to have assurance about being ready for the second coming of Jesus. Thanks for joining us today on Line Upon Line. I'm John Bradshaw with Eric Flickinger and answers to your Bible questions. Thanks for sharing them with us. We'll go to the Bible today and see what God says about the questions that are on your mind. Eric, we've got a good program today. Which question do we begin with? We're going to start with Darren's question. And Darren asks this question. He says, I made a horrible mistake. Will Jesus always forgive me? And he goes into some detail on what his mistake was, but... Will God forgive the mistake that Darren made? Darren, are you with me? Here's the answer. Yes. Now, in case you didn't get it, I'll repeat the answer. Yes. What was the question again? Will God forgive me? Okay, the answer hasn't changed, Darren. Yes. Now, you said that Darren goes into some detail. Detail. Okay, my guess is it's something serious. That's right. All right. Well, that doesn't change anything. Darren, the answer is yes. Let's think of some of the people God forgave in the Bible. God forgave Moses, and Moses was a, do you remember? Murderer. Who else? You've got David. David was an adulterer and a murderer. David was kind of an everything, and he was forgiven. Solomon was up to his eyeballs in profound wickedness. And he was forgiven. Anybody else? Peter. Peter denied Jesus, turned his back on him. And God forgave Peter after what Peter did. God forgives. When we repent, when we are sorry, when we want forgiveness, God forgives. Now, Darren, look at this verse with me. 1 John 1, verse 9. It says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just, to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, I don't share this with you so that you can say, oh, my sin isn't really so bad. Oh, it's bad. I don't share this with you so you can think, well, I can treat sin lightly. You mustn't. You mustn't treat sin lightly. Sin cost Jesus his life. But you must know that what the Bible says is true. You see, when you start quibbling with the forgiveness of God, you're not making any kind of... um, You're not making any kind of, what's the word I'm looking for, concession for your sinfulness. You're simply demonstrating unbelief in the Bible. Now, your sin might have been the worst sin ever committed, but if you would like forgiveness and you're sorry, God will forgive you. So the answer is yes. I'll give you three letters. E-S-Y. Unscramble those letters. See if you can make them into a three-letter word. And when you do, you've got your answer again. I've tried to be emphatic. I'm a little worried I'm not getting my point across. Is there anything you have to add? Let's take a look at what, something that Paul says in the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 6 and verse number 14, he says, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. Right. So sin is not going to rule our lives if we give it over to Jesus. But then he goes into a little bit more detail. He says, What then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law, but under grace? Certainly not. In fact, I prefer the King James there. He says, God forbid. Right. So he can give us victory in sin. We shouldn't stay in it. He can give us victory. He will forgive if we come to him. 
But beyond giving us forgiveness, if we want it, He will give us strength to live a victorious life. Jude verse 24 says, Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 reminds us that God makes a way of escape with every sin. So Darren, let's just segue here from the fact that God will forgive you to the fact that your experience is going to trend towards victory now. God forgives you, cleanses you, fills you with His Spirit, and now when temptation comes, you cry out to God and you say, deliver me because I can't deliver myself. Help me because I can't help myself. That's something we've all got to learn. And if we've learned it, we need to relearn it and learn it better. When sin comes, when temptation comes, God will deliver you from that should you want to be delivered. And it's not a matter of being strong in the moment. It's a matter of living your life connected to God through an appreciation of the character of Christ, through forgiveness, through communion with Him, sin will become hateful to you. Do you hear that? Through an appreciation of the character of Christ, through communion with Him, sin will become hateful to you. You can learn to love righteousness and hate sin. If you don't experience that happening in five minutes, remember that you are growing in the Lord and God can work that work out in your life. Good question, Darren. And I think you got a good answer. I don't know how you could possibly have misunderstood it. God will forgive you and then God will grow you and keep you from the power and the penalty and ultimately the presence of sin. Great one. All right, what's next? We've got a question from Carol, and this one is kind of along the same lines of Darren's. Not, not exactly the same, but Carol asked this question. She, she says, I have a friend who refuses to forgive himself for a thing that he did that he claims God has forgiven him for. I tell him not to beat himself up over it because God has forgiven him, but he says that nowhere in the Bible does it say that you are allowed to forgive yourself for your sins. So he says, God has forgiven me, but I will not forgive myself for what I have done. There's something a little bit healthy about feeling bad about what you've done. You should. If you rob a bank, feel bad about it. If you kill someone, feel really bad about it. If you cheat on your taxes, feel bad about it. You should. That kind of guilt is okay. But what that guilt ought to do is just drive you to God. God forgives you. Then you can forget about those bad feelings as far as possible. Don't live there. I don't want you to be covered up with guilt. I just think a little guilt goes a long way and, and isn't always so bad. Just don't stay anchored in or with or by guilt. There are some fundamental things we need to look at here. Uh, somebody's talking about forgiving themselves. Yeah. Where's that in the Bible? I don't think I've ever come across that. No, and a matter of fact, I guess that's the point. He says it doesn't say in the Bible you can forgive yourself. But there's a reason for that, right? You don't have to forgive yourself. Instead, what do you do when it comes to forgiveness? You confess your sin. First first John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just. That is, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So it's His job to do the forgiving. Our job then becomes believing. That's right. And the challenge that we have with this friend is that he's unwilling to believe. It's not about forgiving yourself. You don't want to forgive yourself. Listen, I hate to mention these terrible things that happen, but you read about parents who, who, who back over children in the driveway of their home, maybe even the neighbor's child. You've got to live with that for the rest of your life. I read about someone who, was, who, who drove drunk and uh, hit somebody and killed them and did some time in jail obviously sobered up and doesn't drink anymore, still feels bad about that. Well, you will. How do you not feel bad? But it's not a matter of forgiving yourself. You don't forgive yourself. You you don't want to beat yourself up over something. That's called dysfunction. It prevents you from being a normal, healthy human being. 
Jesus died so that you can know God forgives you. Celebrate that, revel in that, treasure that, believe that, and then live that. That's how you live a healthy spiritual existence. I've got one more verse for you, Carol, to share with your friend. It's found in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 8 and verse number 1. Here's what Paul says. He says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So no condemnation if your friend has confessed his sins. He can know that they've been forgiven. Excellent. Question here from Chris. Let me read this for you. Does God know when we are born, whether we'll go to heaven or hell? And if he does, why create someone that won't believe and will have to suffer going to hell? It's a good question. It's a great question. It really goes back to why did God create people to begin with? Uh, I guess the simple answer is because he wanted to have somebody to love and who would love him in return. In order for that to take place, there has to be free will. There has to be free choice. You can't program someone to love you. Love just doesn't happen that way. So what about the people that God creates? Does he know whether they're going to be saved or lost? Does God know the end from the beginning? And the obvious answer is yes, he does. So does he create people just to destroy them? Mm. That's an interesting question. Yeah, he sure doesn't. What God does is he gives you freedom of choice. Put a plate of cookies in the room and send three young kids into that room. What's going to happen to the cookies? They're going to be devoured. At least one's going to be sneaked away, probably more than one. Does that mean you forced the choice of the kids? No, you just knew what they were going to do. The fact that God ahead of time knows what people are going to do doesn't mean that God is forcing their choice or just creating people to be lost. God creates people and gives everybody the opportunity to be saved. And when we focus on that, we fail to focus on the wider issues in this great controversy between Christ and Satan. That is the character of God. It's not just whether a person is saved or lost. It's not simply whether a person is saved or lost that matters or that is um, relevant. The question is, what is God doing during this process? God is fair, God is love, and he's giving everybody the opportunity to be saved at immense cost to himself. Your salvation, even the chance for your salvation, meant that Jesus died on the cross. God went through all that out of love for you and out of love for me. These things show us that God is good. He gave us freedom of choice. Yes, it's important what we do with it. It is, but that's of secondary importance. Of primary importance is God's role in this, God's character in this. What's God doing and demonstrating about himself in this entire process? Yeah, this really comes together with the idea of the judgment. Ultimately, God's character has been questioned, is being questioned. Is he just? Is he righteous? And we're going to have an opportunity to decide for ourselves whether he is or not. In the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 2 and 3, you'll find these words. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels how much more things that pertain to this life. So we're going to have an opportunity to see whether or not God's decisions to save or not save people are, are accurate. Amen. Question here from Daniel. Daniel asks, what is the significance of Gog and Magog to Christians living in the world today? He notes they are referenced in the book of Ezekiel. They are. Ezekiel chapter 38, 
Gog and Magog, there are the enemies of God. When you get down to Revelation chapter 20, Gog and Magog are referenced again. Let's turn there briefly, Revelation chapter 20, and we pick it up in verse, oh, let me see. It would be verse 8. And shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. Back in Ezekiel, Gog and Magog represented the enemies of God. In Revelation chapter 20, same thing. You know, in Revelation, John goes back to the Old Testament and borrows imagery there, uses it in the book of Revelation. If you want to understand Revelation well, go back and study these references in their context in the Old Testament. Simply put the enemies of God. No, it's not Iran and Moscow. You've heard as well as I have. Magog sounds like Moscow, so that's Russia. That's not how you want to interpret the Bible ever. When you do so biblically, you discover Gog and Magog have had their day and they're of no relevance to us today, except as they appear symbolically in Revelation chapter 20, representing the wicked. Good questions. If you have more Bible questions, go online. It is written.study. We've got a series of Bible studies waiting for you. They're great. They're beautifully illustrated. They are powerful and they're full of Bible truth. It is written dot study. I want to encourage you to go there and get your questions to us at lineuponline at iiw.org. We'll be back with more in just a moment. Planning for your financial future is a vital aspect of Christian stewardship. For this reason, It Is Written is pleased to offer free planned giving and estate services. For information on how we can help you, please call 800-992-2219. Call today or visit our website, hislegacy.com. Call 800-992-2219. Thank you for remembering that It Is Written is a faith-based ministry, and it's your support that makes it possible for us to share God's good news with the entire world. Your tax-deductible gift can be sent to the address on your screen or through our website, itiswritten.com. Thank you for your continued prayerful support. Our toll-free number is 800-253-3000. Our web address is itiswritten.com. 
Thanks for joining us today on Line Upon Line. He's Eric Flickinger and I'm John Bradshaw. We are both glad that you are here. We want to remind you that if you'd like to get a question to us, you can email it to us at lineuponline at iiw.org. And we have good questions. This question says, does God want us to celebrate Good Friday? Can we work or do anything on that day? The question comes from Lucy. Eric, how do we answer that? Most of the answers, well, actually all of the answers that we want to give on this program, we want to find from the Bible. And the truth is, the Bible doesn't say anything about Good Friday per se. No, it does refer to the day on which Jesus was crucified. But you know something, uh, when it comes to days that you work on and days you don't, the Word of God speaks about the Sabbath. In it thou shalt not do any work. But that's not Friday, that's the day that we know as Saturday. The seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. Any other day of the week, Ezekiel wrote in Ezekiel 46 verse 1, I believe it is, about the six working days. So you can work on Good Friday. Some churches consider Good Friday a holy day. The Roman Catholic Church teaches it's a holy day of obligation. That's a church teaching, not a Bible teaching. You can make of that whatever you will. But Good Friday, you can do pretty well what you like. There's no need to celebrate the death of Jesus, though you might choose to remember it. Uh, be in church on church days. We would recommend you go to church and worship on the Sabbath. Good Friday, that's up for grabs. You just treat it however you wish. Biblically speaking, there's no sacredness attached to that day. We've got a question here from Kathy now. And Kathy says, Deuteronomy 23 verse 2 says that no bastard shall enter the congregation. Can you explain because I am an illegitimate child? Am I under a curse when I come to church? No. You're not under a curse. This is going back to the time when Israel was a theocracy and God had certain rules in place that that were designed to protect the family. You know, and to protect children. God wants to protect families and children today. There are a lot of dysfunctional families, a lot of broken families. God knows your circumstances and He loves you and He wants you in church and He wants you in His heart. So don't let that idea keep you away from worshiping. God wants you to be as close to him as possible and not an inch further away. Good question though, thank you. So we've got a question now from Cecil. And Cecil says, what is the significance of declaring Jerusalem as Israel's capital post-crucifixion? I thought that the Jews as a nation were no longer special to God since they rejected Christ. Can you please clarify? Sure. The Jews as a nation are special to God, but they're not God's peculiar people. Very, very special to God. Everybody's special to God. Um, But the significance of Jerusalem being the capital from a prophetic point of view, wait for it, none. No significance, none whatsoever. I know that uh, moving Jerusalem, sorry, moving the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem and declaring Jerusalem the capital city and so forth, probably sold a few books for a few people. But from a biblical point of view, no, it's a storm and a teacup and of no Bible consequence whatsoever. We've got another question here. This one comes from Errol. In fact, it goes very much along the lines of our last question. Errol wants to know, who are the Israelites of today? There's a little difference between who Israel was back in Old Testament times and who Israel is today. Uh, Just to kind of cut to the chase, and we're going to flesh it out a little bit, uh, today Israel is the Christians. Now, how do we come to that conclusion? Because that wasn't always the case. Well, think about this. 
what was Israel? Israel was simply God's people, mm. right? Israel was God's people. Israel was God's church, basically. Don't get hung up on the definition, but, but that, that's how it, how it works. Israel was the church of God, the church in that old time. So who's God's Israel today? Where do we go to learn this? Well, we're going to take a look at a couple of passages. Let's take a look at Romans chapter 2. Paul says, Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you even with your written code and circumcision who are a transgressor of the law? So what's Paul talking about here? When he's talking about those who are circumcised and uncircumcised, circumcision, that's his reference to the Jews. The uncircumcised, that would be a reference to the Gentiles. So what Paul is saying is, if someone who is uncircumcised, that is a Gentile, fulfills the law, then he says they're going to be regarded as a Jew. But if somebody who is a Jew is, does not keep the law, then in God's eyes, they're going to be viewed as a Gentile. For he, it says in verse 28, is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew which is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. Amen. And look at what it says in Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 28. I'll start in verse 27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Who is the descendant of Abraham today? The one who belongs to Christ. It can't get any clearer than that. I'm sure there's a lot more we could talk about, but for time's sake, we shall not. The Bible is very clear. The Israel of today is the church of today, believers of today. If you belong to Jesus, you are considered to be a descendant of Abraham. And I think what I can add is 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 19. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing but the keeping of the commandments of God. Good question. We appreciate it. Let's look at this next question. And it comes from Debbie. Debbie writes, who is Jehovah? Is he God or is Jehovah another name for God? Why is it there are some people who insist on you can only call him by his name? I just don't understand this. Please, please clarify this for me. So, Debbie, what about Jehovah? You do find the name Jehovah in the Bible, but when we refer to him, do we always have to call him by that name? In the Bible, God has myriad names. And what you discover is that the word Jehovah comes from the what they call the Tetragrammaton, Y-H-W-H, Yahweh, really. And Jehovah is one translation of the very, very holy name of God. Do you have to call Jehovah, Jehovah? Do you have to call God, Jehovah? No, no. My name in English, John. In French, Jean. In Italian, Giovanni. In Espanol, Juan. Uh, auf Deutsch, Johann or Hans. Uh, these are translation issues. I'm not saying so much that, that God's name gets translated all different ways, although it does. So we may call him God, Germans may call him Gott, uh, and so forth. But 
In addition to translation questions, God has lots of names. Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Nisi, Adonai. Now this references a slightly different characteristic of God. You go through the Bible and you see Elohim referenced. Again, different aspects. Maybe they say another, tell another story, add another shade. You don't need to feel like Jehovah is the only name that a person can reference God. There are probably entire churches that stand on that premise, and it's too bad. It's not biblical, and it's not accurate. God does not mind which name of God you choose to reference Him by. Human beings can get hung up on little things. Thank God He is way bigger than that and doesn't get bogged down in minutiae. What questions like this are good for, if you allow them to be, they're good for separating people, for dividing, and for causing trouble. So, so don't let it do that in your experience. All right, we've got another question here. This one's coming from Gary. And Gary says, when we finally get to stay in heaven, what will we Christians do throughout eternity? We're going to have a lot of time on our hands. So how do we answer this question? Well, there are going to be a lot of things that we can do. One thing that we're going to do is keep the Sabbath. In the book of Isaiah, we find that the Sabbath is going to, we're going to come together and meet from one Sabbath to another and from one new moon to another. So we'll be keeping the Sabbath. Uh, the Bible indicates that we're going to have a house, a mansion that Jesus is going to build for us in, uh, in heaven. Well, I reckon we'll probably have some people over to our house from time to time. In the new earth, we're going to be able to build homes. So we'll get to plant vineyards, plant gardens. Uh, the Bible says that there's going to be a lot of animals in the kingdom. Um, looking forward to seeing that too. Amen. And the Bible doesn't tell us a whole lot about what we'll do. We can extrapolate some things as Eric has just done, but there's a lot of gaps left. I'm looking forward to finding out, aren't you? Aren't you looking forward to getting to heaven and maybe Jesus is gonna be your tour guide and take you someplace? I remember as a kid wondering what on earth a person would do for eternity. The older I get, I have no trouble figuring out how we're gonna fill up our time. Yeah. It'll be fantastic, we'll love it. All right, final question. And this one comes from Coco and the question is, why was the mercy seat placed on top of the Ark of the Covenant? Really good question. I think it's a good, some good answers in here. It is. If you think about the way that the most holy place was arranged, you had the Ark of the Covenant. Inside the Ark, among other things, was God's law that the sinner had broken. Just above the mercy seat was the Shekinah glory. That was a physical manifestation of God's presence. Now, can sin exist in the presence of a holy God? I think we know the answer to that is no, it cannot. And so what did God do to demonstrate his mercy? Between his law, which the sinner has broken, and his presence, he put the mercy seat. Mercy. God's mercy is right there. It's there for you, it's there for me, it's for every person who has ever sinned. And think about mercy. Mercy is something that you show to someone who doesn't deserve it. Mercy is something extended to someone who's done something wrong. Maybe they've broken the law. And God has a mercy seat. So God has taken care of sin and he has a plan for sinners that they come to him, repent of their sins and receive the righteousness of Jesus. And with that righteousness, we are gonna go walking in through the gates of pearl onto streets of gold. Thanks for joining us, Eric. It's been good. Thank you. Thank you. We'll do this again. Get your questions to us at lineuponline at lineuponline at iiw.org. We'll see you next time. Thanks and God bless you.